Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, a crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the Private Wealth Group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. As the digital bites settle on a pretty turbulent 2022, we look at what we see as the top five legal cases in the crypto and digital assets space of 2022. So, good morning, Kieran. Hello, Roman. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, very well, thanks. Just uh, we had a bit of an impromptu fire drill, so I spent some a little bit of unwanted time out in the cold, probably like many of these uh, claimants in the in these cases. But other than that, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very, very, very well, thank you. And I think on the subject of being out in the cold, I think even though it was an exciting 2022, I think we have a a podcast with the contents today, which which show that actually the courts are bringing these people back into the warmth, I think. Is that right? Bingo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we had, I mean, 2022 really saw crypto kind of come out the fringes, didn't it, into mainstream society. It was hitting the headlines on a near daily basis, often for negative reasons. But, you know, we had the, the terror lunar token crash and depegging. We had FTX, the crash and filing for bankruptcy, just days after having a market valuation of $32 billion, which we obviously spoke about in a, in a recent podcast. But as you say, 2022 also saw the high courts here in England and Wales really, and actually by the end of the year, the Court of Appeal really actively grapple with the issues and pitfalls surrounding ownership, loss and recovery of digital assets. And they've really helped to sort of streamline what was previously seen as a cumbersome and complex process in looking to recover digital assets. Yeah, it's really good to see them taking on that. I, th- I think our last round of podcasts showed that they were getting there and now they really are putting that into practice in terms of offering a, a very flexible and I think quite novel approach to this novel type of asset, which is great to see. Oh, absolutely. Really, really exciting for all of us partaking in in, in, in the in the area to be a part of it, which is great. So I, what's on the cards today then, Roman? What, what are we talking about? So, I mean, really, in terms of the top five cases, we, I mean, I think the first one in at number five, we've got Osborne and, and surprise, surprise, Persons Unknown and others. So this Persons Unknown features a lot in these cases, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of the, the catchphrase to, oh, there's a digital assets yeah, case. Absolutely. They don't know who their defendants are. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, this was a great one because I mean, this is the first one which, it, where the High Court recognized NFTs and so non fungible tokens as property which can be subject to a freezing injunction. Yeah. Now, the claimant in this case, Lavinia Osborne, she um, holds herself out as, and, and by all, all accounts, is a blockchain, fintech, and Welltech specialist consultant. And so I think. A lot of this, because when you look at the values, I think a lot of this was driven by that, by 
obviously has given that that's that's her profile she needs to maintain credibility in the sector and the space now she bought a without notice application and again i mean many of these yeah. applications are without notice because you don't want to tip off the potential perpetrators but here was without notice application seeking first of all an injunction preventing these so-called persons unknown from dealing with or dissipating or disposing of two of these NFTs, which were given to Ms. Osborne, reportedly from a collection by what was called the Boss Beauties Foundation. And also directing the second defendant, Ozone, who's trading as OpenSea, not to permit any further transfers. So OpenSea was this platform which received and then accommodated these NFTs. And then the second part of the application sought what's called a banker's trust disclosure order. We'll see these are very common in these types of cases. These alongside Norwich Pharmacal orders. But effectively, this required the second defendant, Ozone, to release information it might hold about the identity of the persons unknown. So effectively, I mean, a banker's trust order, type of order that authorizes and requires a financial institution, most often a bank, but obviously in the case of crypto assets, generally a crypto exchange or peer-to-peer digital asset marketplace like this one, to disclose information about customers and circumstances where it's thought fraud has been committed to allow a person to trace those assets. Gets its case in the 198, oh sorry, its name rather, from the 1980 case of Bankers Trust and Shapira. And while it's similar, obviously we deal with these, and these are quite similar to Norwich Pharmacal orders, which we'll talk about later. It differs in that a Norwich Pharmacal order is an order for disclosure by a third party about information which can allow a potential claimant to plead their case. Mm. And it's historically been the more prevalent type of order in case of suspected fraud. But as we'll see, is the banker's trust orders, which seem to be the order of the day, if you pardon the pun, involving crypto assets. And then finally, she sought permission to serve those orders outside of the jurisdiction and by alternative means. And I know in particular, that's something you've been doing a fair amount of recently, as well as serving outside the jurisdiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a, it's a myriad in itself. I mean, it's, it's, sometimes tricky to get through but you can get it there and i think we we focus on a case later on where actually the the more recently allowed gateways or adopted gateways show that in these types of digital asset cases the courts are being particularly flexible and i think for the first time showcasing that these gateways are are really applicable which is great and it helps speed things up makes everything a lot more efficient absolutely and opens everything up so i mean lavinia i i think it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because the the assets in question are not as high as what we've seen in some other cases, where you know four billion of assets are are being looked at and looking at being recovered. But here, I think the amount was four thousand. That's right. Yeah. So she obviously had a very sentimental attachment to these two NFTs or some other kind of emotional attachment is that right yeah i think so and i mean they, they were important i mean in that in in the terms of what they represent i think they the nfts from memory were were tokens which were sort of emblematic of strong women there was a, a push around that but i think that's right i think what was what made it so unique is they weren't financially a particular value but what the court said was that they had 
a particular personal and unique value to her, which extends beyond their mere fiat currency value. Now, we don't mean that it, you know, it, it's worth more than a, a car, but more than the figure of 4,000, which makes it interesting, doesn't it? Because then yeah. so often with you know, we've got the overriding objective of the civil procedure rules, which says cases have to be dealt with justly and proportionately. And, you know, we look at proportionality here, and this is this is a recognition, albeit I'm sure, you know, that these NFTs probably, well, we can only speculate, but there's a recognition here that the value isn't necessarily financial. It isn't pounds and pens. There's, mm. there's something more here. Now, if this was 4,000 pounds of cash that had been stolen from a bank account i'm not sure whether the court would have bent over backwards to to take this forward and i'm not sure whether any claimant would have would have made these applications but i think because this was a new area of law the courts are obviously keen to develop the law in this area no doubt this is why it got an audience before the court yeah absolutely and i i think the idea of disclosure is of course important so if you allow that disclosure then the person that's that's wanting to proceed, the claimant in this case, is is then given the information that allows recovery, hopefully, at the end of it all, isn't it? That's the idea of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the first hurdle to overcome so many of these is getting through that gateway, isn't it, to serve it abroad. And that comes down to whether there's a serious issue to be tried. And here they felt, well, even if it's only worth £4,000, there's a personal unique value to Lavinia. There's a serious issue to be tried. Yeah, yeah. So it's on a Justice Pelling KC who was hearing it, then looked at whether England Wales was the appropriate jurisdiction and described NFTs as a stream of electrons. <laughs> so obviously very, being very factual about it, very literal about it, and uh, following previous authority concluded that crypto assets are to be treated for legal purposes as being located in the place that the owner's domiciled so yes that's an important thing yeah it? it doesn't and it's you've got your lex situs you know so where the asset is located you've got your lex domicili where the where the person's domiciled that's what they're saying here so in terms of the injunctive relief sort having found there was a serious issue to be tried the judge has considered whether damages would be an appropriate remedy to me. And hmm. he said that given the lack of information about the person's unknown and the value to Lavinia of the NFTs, it was right and proper to grant an injunction. And that was a, that was a first, wasn't it? So Yeah, it was. And the first time ever that a freezing injunction has been provided in, in relation to an NFT. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I think yeah, the fact that they're 4,000 pounds in value is actually not the point. I think it the, the real point here is to show that freezing injunctions can apply. And in some future in time, yes, proportionality may be taken into account. And perhaps this wouldn't be permitted in, let's say, five years' time. But because it's the first time, it shows that, you know, it's very much the pilot, if you will, of, of the series to come, hopefully. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting, interesting judgment. Yeah. And so, and I mean, having with that it was then whether you can make the bankers trust order against ozone and again he had to consider whether there was a serious issue to be tried and had to satisfy himself that granting the order sought from this disclosure order from ozone whether that would or had a good chance of leading to location and preservation of the nfts and he was confident it would 
And they had to be satisfied that it was proportionate to make the order. So as you say, the pilot's episode, but he did say because he limited the disclosure. So he limited it to the name, address, email addresses, and other contact details available to them concerning those in whose name the relevant wallets are maintained. So obviously you mentioned the gateways and because they use a specific gateway here, didn't they, within within the civil procedure rules? Yeah, they, they did. I think they considered a number of possible gateways, but the most appropriate one to enable the court to authorize the service outside of the jurisdiction was gateway 15C, which is where a claim is made against the defendant as constructive trustee or as trustee of a resulting trust where the claim is governed by the law of England and Wales. So I think here, in short, he was effectively agreeing that the alleged hackers were effectively holding the NFTs on constructive trust for Miss Osborne. And therefore, once you get that yeah. um, clarification, then the gateway is open to you. And in fact, because that gateway was part of the, the further the high court hearing in September, wasn't it? Because that was the point, really, was that I think the first gateway looked at if there's between the claim and defendant real issue which is reasonable for them to try and the claimant wishes to serve the claim for. It's kind of fairly stock gateway. And as we say, we had here then the subject of the freezing, well, the NFT was subject to this freezing injunction. And what Pelling said in this case, he brought up this, and this is the theme that runs through, was this clear dichotomy between these bankers' trust orders on the one hand and Norwich Pharmacal orders on the other. And he commented that, and I think this is quite useful because from memory, this was heard right at the start of the year. Mm. And so at some stage, it will be necessary for a court to grapple with the question of whether or not it is a matter of principle, either both bankers' trusts and Norwich Pharmacal type claims should be permitted to be served out of the jurisdiction, usually adopting the necessary appropriate party gateway, or whether neither should be permitted. Because they'd obviously been looking at bankers' trust orders, saying, well, look, the court seemed to be favoring these types of orders. They seem to be shying away from Norwich Pharmacal orders. Someone, but not Pelling, is going to have to consider, do we allow both or none at all? Mm-hmm. And obviously, as we'll see from the LMN case, which we'll talk about in a moment, then the court did grapple with that. But that wasn't the end of the case because, as you say, come September 2022, this case came before the court again. That decision was actually handed down on the 13th of January this year, 2023. But that gives a useful update because it confirmed that Open CRO zone provided the disclosure sort. So they had actually provided this. That's good news. Thereafter, claim against it was dismissed. Then Lavinia Miss Osborne issued a claim against the persons unknown. The name was Thimbani Dube, whose details she was able to obtain from an email address that was disclosed by them and who was acknowledged as the holder of a wallet into which one of the NFTs was transferred and the other NFT remained in a wallet. So off the back of that, she then sought permission, issued an application to amend her claim form to add these personal persons who she believed were in possession or control of the NFTs. She wanted to seek a proprietary equitable claim against them. And that's the key with the gateway, isn't it? That opened up that gateway. She wanted to extend the injunctions granted, obviously wanted to service outside the jurisdiction, and she wanted to permit service by alternative means. And that's when, as you say, this gateway 15c was used because what they were saying there then and this is what we see again throughout this the theme here is that the defendant is holding as a constructive trustee or as a trustee of a resulting trust where the claim is governed by the law of england wales 
it's basically saying that the alleged hackers were holding the NFTs on constructive trust for Ms. Osborne. They've you know been unjustly enriched. They've taken these funds, and that's and that's his fund. We see I mean, you and I deal with constructive trusts every day, and it's just nice to see that the courts are recognizing that fiduciary relationship between hacker and hacky or hacked, isn't it? Hacky, <laughs> absolutely. And it's nice to see the, the you know the, the the equity courts, and which is what you and I very much operate within. Well, perhaps not the equity courts itself, but but the courts op- you know, using equitable relief available to claimants to right a wrong and to try and ensure that those that are in the wrong hold those assets on trust for you know the person that has been wronged uh, yeah it's, it's it's really good to see and there i think in that case it was the first case in which service by nft was approved as a sole method of service now obviously that leads us very nicely to the lawyer and persons unknown i think we, we've spoken about this case previously but that was the first reported instance of the court permitting service of proceedings by nft wasn't it that's right yeah, and, and that was seen as groundbreaking at the time because the the judge looking at, at that case really understood how effective, you know, service by NFT can be because it, it, it's permanent record. It you know it, it shows that it's going to be on on, on the blockchain. So it immutable, embeds, isn't it? And it's immutable, exactly. Which is great because you know when you send something out in the post and it's deemed effectively served, how do you actually know that the person you want to have those sets of proceedings actually seize it. Now that can work, you know, as, as we both know, that can work well in some cases or, or not, has its advantages and disadvantages. But in this case, where you want to find out who these people are and, and actually recover the assets, then it's very important to show that they should have seen it. Everything is available for them to see it. So that was that was very much a groundbreaking case. And we we, we covered that quite extensively in, in, in the last set of podcasts, in series one of the podcast. So if you're interested in that case, I think there's plenty on that in, in the first series and, and please have a listen to it. Yeah. And again, I mean, they, they use one, they use a gateway there because if it was a serious issue to be tried in relation to declaratory relief in respect of, lo and behold, a constructive trust. So, but I, I love the idea that, you, you know, and it's what I love about it is that it's, it's airdropping the NFT, whereas with service by post, even if you do do it by record delivery, how often have we had it where people just reject it, try to return it back? I mean, there's there's no there's no sending back an airdrop, is there? So no, not at all. I love it because it you know it does show, and and people have been served by Twitter in the past. You know that was quite novel then. Yeah, we've done we've served people by WhatsApp. Yes, well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and it just shows that, well, if there's technology there and, and you have a very receptive judge, and I think most of them are in, in this sphere, then they'll they'll allow it, as we've seen now. I mean, there's, there's now going, you know, there's, there, well, there is a precedent for it that's now being operated, which is great to see. So very much a groundbreaking case there. Yeah, it makes it feel pretty uh, archaic serving something by WhatsApp these days then, doesn't it? Yeah, it, well, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Still effective, though, once you get the blue ticks. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's all about those blue ticks. <laughs> it's all about the blue ticks. Um, we don't want to be put on red when we're, when we're serving someone. No. But, um, well, sometimes it can be beneficial, but perhaps that's a, that's a topic for another conversation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah re- really interesting. And then I think we get on to 
Jones against Persons Unknown again. Oh, gosh, these Persons Unknown, I mean, they are the, of, of all the defense, these are the most notorious guys, these Persons Unknown, aren't they? Yeah, they, they really are. I think this one came hot of the heels of the, the earlier case because it said that there may be a constructive trust which would permit use of a service gateway to formally declaring that a constructive trust existed. That was the point, wasn't it? It was that difference between the lawyer allowing use of the service gateway by saying, look, a, a constructive trust may exist here. They kind of outright said that a constructive trust did exist. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, It's a great case, this one, isn't it? It is. And I, I think central to this one was actually, I think the, the claimant was able to find which crypto exchange had the wallet which held these stolen funds. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So this case, it was Gary Jones. So he was conned into investing, so in uh, speech marks or inverted commas, investing about £450,000 to fund apparently the purchase of Bitcoin with what turned out to be a fraudulent cryptocurrency investment website called XTIC Pro. Those investments actually amounted to nearly 90 Bitcoin, which wow. at the time the claim or the purported loss were worth approximately one and a half million. So that was when he attempted to withdraw his Bitcoin. And surprise, surprise, a number of few failed attempts later, he issued proceedings against these so-called persons unknown for uh, deceit and also unjust enrichment. So then we're looking at these equitable remedies again, these these reliefs given historically traditionally by the courts of equity and equity, you know, natural justice, fairness, and against also Huobi Global Limited, who are a Seychelles-based crypto exchange and the crypto exchange held a wallet where the stolen Bitcoin was traced. And what he said is that on that basis, he said that it must hold that stolen Bitcoin, although Huobi itself wasn't the perpetrator because it was facilitating the holding of this wallet by the perpetrator, that Huobi held that stolen Bitcoin as constructive trustee for him. So it's really expanding that constructive trustee relationship from the hacker to the... Yeah, exactly. The hacker to holder. There we go. That should be the title of this of this yeah. of this uh, podcast thing. Now, in this case, the claimants Gary also relied on the now and it is well settled authority first laid out in AA and Persons Unknown in 2019 case, which again, as we said, confirmed that cryptocurrency is a form of property, so it can be subject to appropriate proprietary remedies. Got to try saying that if you had a, a few. one too many. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think here he managed to successfully obtain freezing injunctions against both Persons Unknown and Huobi. I think I'm saying that right. Roman, you'll correct me if I'm not. Yep, I'm with you on this. I, I, th- I assume that's right. I think so. Who will be? But uh, neither of those engaged with the litigation, unsurprisingly. And so he sought and, and obtained summary judgment. And the High Court permitted service of the subsequent order by NFT. NFT. <laughs> I've actually seen it. I've seen it online. If you if you go online, you can actually find the link to it. It's uh, it, it's great. It's really interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a look at that. And, yeah, it's um, worth checking out to see what it actually looks like and all the data with it. Yeah, good to see. But I, I think on, on the NFT front again, I mean, why did why did he seek that? Well, because it it was important clearly to bring the order that was made to Huobi's attention quickly because as we know with these types of assets they can be dissipated pretty quickly so i I think that's 
that's obviously the, the basis for that. Again, it shows NFT, you know, service by NFT is, is, is very effective. And in this case, I think was actually in the end very effective. And we'll get onto that in a minute. But what, what did the high court say, Roman? What was the... Quobi held the Bitcoin as constructive trustee for Mr. Jones. So that was a declaration they made, which is great. In turn, because of that, they held that that Bitcoin, and it's very important that it was that Bitcoin in that wallet, because bear in mind, you know, the sort of company Quobi is their crypto exchange. You can't have them just using anyone else's funds. It's important that they, that they ring friends these and that they that, that Bitcoin in that wallet should be delivered up to Mr. Jones. And... This is the kicker, that they ordered a further eight Bitcoin from that wallet to be transferred to Gary Jones in relation to his legal costs. So what a great way of securing a costs order of saying, well, rather than a separate costs order, having to pursue them for cash, getting that summary judgment, getting the costs order, recovering the original amount stolen, plus additional Bitcoin to represent your costs. I, I think it's great. And actually, this is something which is, I think, remember, dealt with in the Law Commission's consultation on digital assets, wasn't it? We were talking about, because we obviously responded to that, and it was looking at, given the volatile nature of crypto, whether you could make costs orders, secure them against digital assets, cryptocurrencies, wasn't it? So this is a real-life situation where that has happened. Well, that's huge. It's great, isn't it? That really is huge. And I, I think you commented here saying that you know, really it, it marks a significant turning point in crypto litigation because it's, and I think I'm right in saying this, it's the rare instance of where you've had judgment and then actual recovery of assets back to you, which is just huge. That's it. And, and I think this will hopefully open the floodgates because, I mean, the fact is, Huobi, much like many of these crypto exchanges and trading platforms, although you've got you know, decentralized and often unregulated nature of these, these companies do not want to be associated with being platforms for hackers because many will say that the whole idea of cryptocurrency is based on trust and faith. And if that falls apart, then the value of cryptocurrency falls with it, doesn't it? And so Huobi, I believe they honored that and and, and they then they transferred it over and then they'd hit the legal headlines. It's amazing that I think that's that's and I, I think of course the, the, the key key point is that he was able to trace and I'd like to get to the bottom of actually how he was able to trace that wallet to that exchange. But I think from what you've said there, you know, hit the nail on the head. Hopefully now after this one, once you've traced it and you've been successful there, and you're dealing with a, a sensible exchange, which clearly he was here, then you hopefully be in a position where you're put back into the position you were in before you were you were hacked um, or conned, which is amazing. Yeah. Well, it was a friends at crypto tracing, tracing firm. So we work with firms like this regularly, and, and well, they, they, they were able to, to locate it from, yeah, from, from, from the point of theft, as it were, and then track it. And it, it, yeah, it's great. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out? Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com.